Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer and make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study the word, ready to concentrate and put aside all those distractions from the day, turn off cell phones. Get computers turned on so they can play their little music. If you don't know how to turn the music off, talk to Tom. He knows how to do that. Um, So let's have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Father, we're so thankful we've had another day, an opportunity to Uh, serve you, an opportunity to glorify you with the things that we do during the day. And, Father, we just pray that as we study tonight, we'll continue to be challenged with uh, your word. And as we study these things, see the purpose that you have uh, saved us and that we have a reason for living on earth and a way to serve you and honor you and glorify you. And we pray that you would uh, challenge us with these things. In Christ's name, amen. We are in Hebrews chapter 10. And we are coming to the end of the teaching section. As I've stated, there are five basic sections in Hebrews, going back to the outline we haven't looked at in a long time. And the fourth section began with chapter 7, verse 1, and extends down through 1039, the end of chapter 10. And this focus, this is really the centerpiece of the book of Hebrews, this whole epistle. And if it's the center, that means that that the that which the writer is writing to communicate is conveyed most heavily and most directly in this section. And as we come to the end of the teaching section in uh, chapter 10, he comes to a conclusion. That's why he has a therefore in, in verse uh, 19, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. And that, therefore, brings us to uh, the conclusion of the teaching section in the centerpiece of Hebrews. And what this is going to tell us is that everything has sort of built to these three commands that you find in verse verses 19 through 25. This is going to be followed by a warning section, which many people think is one of the most uh, difficult uh, warning passages of those in Hebrews. And then we get into uh, the fifth section beginning in chapter uh, 11 through the end of um, uh, through the end of the epistle. And that has two uh, exhortation, exhortation sections with it. Now, last time we just sort of hit the last uh, six verses here, seven verses, and did sort of a, a flyover. And tonight I want to get into a little more detail and to address some of the specifics that we find in this particular section. So he begins with this conclusion, therefore, brethren. And he uses a participle, an adverbial participle of cause here, a present uh, active participle of echo, meaning to have and to hold or to uh, have something as your possession. And he, and as an adverbial participle, it has, it's going to modify a, a main verb, but the main verbs don't come until verse 22, verse 23, and verse, verse 24. There are three main verbs. This is one long sentence from 19 through 25. And as I teach uh, pastors on exegesis, what you look for to get the main idea are the main clauses, the independent clause or clauses in a sentence. And that tells you what the writer is talking about. 
And even if you have a long sentence and there's a lot of additional ideas that are piled onto that one main idea, it's important to keep your eye on the ball and remember that everything else just feeds to and points to those main, uh, main finite verbs. And those main finite verbs are the ones that are translated as a first-person imperative. For those of you who like to learn about these things, that's called a cohortative. It's a first-person first imperative. So we usually think of, in English, we just have a second-person imperative, you do this. There is also a third-person imperative that is the idea of let them do that or let him do something. And it's usually translated with that idea of let. And that, to me, always seemed kind of wimpy. And it should be he must do this or he should do that. And when you have a first-person imperative, it's we should do this or we must do this. And I really like the must a little because it makes it stronger and it has seems to have more of the imperatival idea than uh, let us because that seems to communicate a little less strength and power to the imperative. And it is a strong uh, imperative here. So the participle in verse 19 is adverbial, to, and which means it modifies those uh, three verbs in 22, 23, 24, let us draw near, or we must or we should draw near, we must or we should hold fast, or we must or we should consider or think about uh, one another. Those are the three main verbs and three main uh, clauses in this lengthy sentence. So he starts off with this adverbial participle of cause, and it's going to have two objects to it because it's not stated, even though it is in your English in verse 21, you will have the word having in italics in verse uh, 21, having a high priest. But he's just going to emphasize uh, that these two reasons that underlie the the three commands, and he restates these reasons, and they summarize everything he said in chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, and so far in chapter 10, which focuses on the complete and finished work of Christ on the cross, which fulfills all the uh, typology and all the symbolism and all the sacrifices that they had observed in the Old Testament. And as he said again and again and again, those were repeated. The high priest had to go through those sacrifices even for his own sin. They were insufficient, incomplete, but the death once and for all, which is a word repeated many times through this section, the once for all death of Christ on the cross satisfied the Father, solved the sin problem completely for all time. So he comes to a conclusion because of that, and here's how I've just synthesized or summarized these seven verses. Therefore, brethren, because we have boldness to enter the holiest, that is, into the presence of God in the heavenly temple, to enter the holiest by the death of Jesus, by a new and living way which he set apart for us through the veil, that is his flesh, we must draw near, we must hold fast, and we must think carefully about rousing one another to love and good works. That's what he's saying. And it all flows out of now that we understand and we understand what Jesus did on the cross and all the dimensions of it, and it's taken us a year to go through chapter 9 and chapter 10 dealing with all of that, and see the complexity of what God accomplished on the cross through the death of Christ and the complexity of the sin problem, now there is an imperative that flows out of that for believers in terms of their spiritual life, and specifically for these uh, Jewish believers who are about ready to abandon Christianity and go back to uh, Judaism. So he... This is his point. This is the, the focal point of why this letter to the Hebrews is written, is to tell them that they need to draw near to God and fellowship and uh, daily fellowship walking with him and holding fast to the truth of God's word and not giving up on doctrine, not thinking that, well, doctrine really doesn't work, and that they have to think carefully 
about how to encourage each other because we're all in a spiritual battle and we're not isolated. We're not out there as individual soldiers with no interrelationship and no support team. And that's the background for understanding this. So we are, he says in verse 19, by brethren, uh, because we have boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us, or as I translated it earlier, at which he set apart for us by virtue of his death. That's the uh, Greek Word hagiosmos related to holiness, sanctification, all of those words indicate being set apart by God, a new and living way which he consecrated for us as the first fruits of resurrection as well, through the veil that is his flesh. And verse 21, and because we have a high priest over the house of God. Now, what does the house of God mean? Your first blush response to that might be, well, house of God, that would be, he's talking about church age believers, so we're talking about church age, the body of Christ. And some people think that, but it's not talking about the body of Christ here. Actually, the phrase house of God is used four times in the New Testament. It's used in this passage, and it's used three times in the Gospels, in Matthew 12, 4, Mark 2, 26, and Luke 6, 4. And in each of those other three uses, it clearly refers to the temple. It refers to the temple in Jerusalem because it was still standing uh, at that time, and it's still standing at the time the writer of Hebrews is writing. But in the context of chapters 9 and 10, we're not, we haven't been talking about the earthly temple, We've been talking about how the furniture in the tabernacle reflects the furniture in the heavenly temple, which is the dwelling place of God in heaven, and that it is Jesus Christ as the high priest who entered into the presence of God in the heavenly temple, and by virtue of his death, he has been able to enter into the heavenly temple. So this is talking about his function as high priest at the right hand of God the Father in the heavenly temple. This is not over the body of Christ or the church or the local church or anything like that. It is that he has now uh, opened up a way into the very presence of God in the heavenly temple. And then we come to verse 22, which brings us to the, the first of these three present uh, active subjunctive verbs. There are three of them. Let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us, let us consider. Now this first verb is from the verb pros erikamai, which in its more prosaic use, its more common use, simply means to come to some place. Erkamai is a Greek verb for coming, and pros has that idea of to or toward some place. And so it simply means to come someplace or to go someplace, but it's often used in the New Testament with the idea of closeness or fellowship or worship. And some of the places where it's used with a little more, uh, a little more of that idea are listed up there on the screen. Matthew 8, 5 and 19. Matthew, uh, excuse me, Matthew 8, 2, uh, 9, 20. Uh, Matthew 26, 7. Acts 7, 31 and 8, 29 have a little more of that idea of closeness or fellowship or, or worship. Some frequently in the Gospels, it's used to speak of someone coming to ask Jesus something. So it has that idea of a teaching situation or a learning situation. Some of the places where it's used like that are in Matthew 8, 5 and 19, Matthew 9, 14 and 28, Matthew 10, uh, 13, 10 and 36, Matthew 15, 30 and 20. 20. Matthew uses this verb a lot, 
Uh, just a long list in the uh, concordance of, of all the uses there. There's many, many more. I just selected those few as representative. Paul uses the word one time in all of his epistles. doesn't use it but once, and there he uses it in a sort of a, an unusual sense. The main idea is something comes to something, so he uses it to talk about someone's words must conform to truth, to doctrine. And that's the idea, it must come to the truth. So he uses it in a little bit of an idiomatic way in, in uh, one verse in the pastorals. But the writer of Hebrews uses it seven times. This is one of those words that people would key in on and say, see, this isn't typical of Paul. Paul only uses this word one time, and yet the writer of Hebrews uses it seven times. So this would indicate that that Paul was not the author of Hebrews because you have different vocabulary in Hebrews than you do in the Pauline epistles. So this would be one example uh, that, that they might use to, uh, to argue for their particular case. Of course, nobody knows who wrote uh, the book of Hebrews other than God. And seminary students who study too late at night and stress out and have a little break with reality. That happened one time a few years before uh, I started seminary. Somebody, some student called Dr. Walvert up about 3 o'clock in the morning saying that he had finally discovered who wrote the book of Hebrews. He had the next semester off for rest and recovery. See, that can happen, Ike. You just be, be careful. Now, when we look at the grammar of this word, it's important to understand it because a subjunctive mood verb is a verb that usually emphasizes probability. And yet it is often used for, uh, as, an, as, a, uh, as an idiomatic way of expressing an imperative in the first person. And this is called a, a hortatory use of the subjunctive, and hortatory is from the same word as exhort, and it has that idea of it's of just expressing a first-person command. And so it would be translated, we should do this, we must do this. The author sees himself as part of the group that needs to do this. He's not saying you need to do this. He's saying we all need to do this. There is a danger that threatens every one of us, him, the writer him, himself included, to fall away from the fulfillment of these commands. But these commands are essential for any soldier fighting in a unit in a battle in order to be able to successfully fulfill the mission, to use a military analogy. If you're in sports, it's a team-playing operation, and there's an emphasis on uh, the teamwork that must be developed by the members of the team in order to win the game. That's not, the body of Christ, as we'll see, is not made up of a bunch of individuals who are doing their own thing. Uh, we have a problem in this country because of our national psyche, one might say. We have an emphasis on individualism. Uh, rugged individualism is at the heart of Americanism. But rugged individualism is not at the heart of the spiritual life. While only you can live your spiritual life, you do not live your spiritual life in isolation from other members of the body of Christ. And so the first person plural emphasizes this, this teamwork, which will come to a head in the third command when he says that we are to give serious reflection to how to stimulate or stir up love and good works among other believers. So this is a very important term. Well, when we start off here, we read, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And the idea here is very similar to one we've already seen him state in this epistle that we find back in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. And these verses, at least 4.16, are verses that are very uh, familiar to you. There we read, Seeing then 
that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, and the word therefore seeing is used sort of idiomatically for knowing because we know that we have a great high priest. Notice the emphasis on his role, Jesus' role as high priest, who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. See, that's that same imperatival use of the subjunctive mood. Let us hold fast, or we should, or we must hold fast our confession. For we, must, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but in all, was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. And then in verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. And that is the same idea that we have here in verse 22. Let us draw near with a uh, true heart in full assurance of faith. Let us draw near to God. Not to one another here, it is drawing near to God. And that's the same idea of Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore come boldly, or we should, or we must come boldly. That's that idea again that we have from verse 19. Therefore, brethren, because we have boldness or confidence, uh, we can come into the presence of God. We have con- this confidence because of the death of Christ and what he did for us. So we are challenged and commanded to come boldly to God's throne that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So, And, of course, verse 14 reiterates the same point he's going to state in the second command to hold fast the confession of our hope. But verse 14 uses a little different word for it in Hebrews 4.14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast. And it's the Greek word krateo. Again, it's a uh, present, active, subjunctive, and it means to be strong, to take possession of something, to hold something, to grasp it, or to seize it. And it is a synonym for the expression that's used in verse uh, 23 in our passage, let us hold fast, but the word we have is echo, not krateo. So it's a different word, but they have the same idea of grabbing onto something and holding onto it for all your worth, and for no reason whatsoever are you going to give it up, no matter what the pressure is, no matter what the... Uh, circumstances are you face, no matter how overwhelmed you may be with with uh, uh, negative emotions of defeat or uh, the impossibility of the task or the fact that you're under uh, pressure or persecution, we are never to give up what we believe and what we are holding on to. That's the idea, as we'll see in the concept of of confession. And all of this is predicated upon Jesus Christ's work on the cross. And the idea that we have in the context is not just justification in Hebrews 4. He's assuming that. The idea is that this is related to the ongoing fellowship of the believer after salvation. We are to hold on to doctrine. We're not to give it up. We're not to think, well, you know, doctrine doesn't work. So I'm going to go try some other system. I'm going to go watch Dr. Phil and see if I can figure out how to solve my problems that way. If that doesn't work, I'll watch Oprah and see if I can figure out my how to live my life that way. And if that doesn't work, I'll go down to the local bar and figure out if I can solve it that way. Whatever the solution may be, we have to understand that it only comes from the Word of God. And part of, uh, of the Christian life is built upon persistence or perseverance that's hanging in there and trusting God even when things may appear to us uh, to be hopeless. And the point is that we understand that Jesus Christ has provided us with a complete salvation. This is stated in Hebrews 7.25 where the writer stated, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, that's that same word that we have here, proserkomai, those who draw close to God. It's a word indicating an intimate fellowship in Hebrews. Those who draw close to God through him, since he always lives 
to make, that is, Jesus Christ always lives to make intercession for them. And that word that's translated uttermost there is a Greek word, pontelis, which sort of has the idea of the allness. It's emphasizing the uh, completedness of what Christ did on the cross, sort of the tetelestiness of everything Christ did. And we've seen that even in our context here in Hebrews chapter 10, that, that Jesus Christ uh, after he had completed the payment for the completion or the maturity of the body of Christ, for the com- maturity of believers, uh, sat down at the right hand of the Father. So these verses emphasize a post-salvation spiritual life in the importance of fellowship and drawing near to God. So verse 22, Hebrews 10:22, back to that verse emphasizes that fellowship. Let us draw near, but there's something that is associated. It's not just sort of a feel-good thing, like I'm going to go to church and they're going to play some wonderful choruses and the music's going to stir me and the uh, song leader's going to tell some touching stories and I'm going to start to weep a little bit and then I'll be close to God because that's what signifies it. And a lot of people think that. They think that that emotion is is necessary, and that indicates that they must be having a spiritual experience. Now, sometimes when we are really impacted by God's word, emotion accompanies that. I'm not saying that's wrong, but it's wrong to put it as the in the driver's seat. It stays in the back seat, not up in the front seat, and the emotion is very can be very much a part of our spiritual life, but it doesn't drive it. And the problem that you get in a lot of the contemporary ideas on worship is that they try to keep manufacturing this same emotive state because that's how they define being close to God. Whereas what we've seen again and again is being close to God in the Scripture is primarily judicial. Now, that doesn't sound like it's always that warm and fuzzy to just define it as a judicial issue. But the problem that we've had with God is a judicial problem. It's not an emotional problem. And so God has uh, separated us from him because of sin. And sin and Christ's death on the cross solved that problem. Sins are canceled. That is just such a wonderful thing that the issue of sin just isn't a problem. That is grace. That is what grace is all about is that God did it all and we don't have to do anything in order to add to that, that Jesus Christ canceled out the problem of sin at the cross. We still sin, but we're always going to sin because we still have a sin nature. The regeneration doesn't cancel the, 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 the sin nature. And there are a lot of people who teach that today. And the problem with teaching that is that every time you sin after you're saved, you run around wondering if you're really saved or if you lost your salvation, if you're an Arminian. But the Bible says that God has dealt with the sin problem and we're born again. We're new creatures in Christ. We're babies and babies do all kinds of nasty little things and have to be bathed and washed and cleaned up after for a long time before uh, they start to get any level of maturity to be able to take care of themselves. And unfortunately, if, if people aren't taught the Word of God so that they can grow up, then they're just going to run around in spiritual diapers for most of their life, and the only way to control them is through a lot of legalism. So the passage talks about the importance of that fellowship. We're to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Now, it's very interesting how we should understand this particular phraseology. The preposition that's used here is the Greek preposition meta, which means uh, something that's in the midst of something or among something. It's a preposition that indicates close association. And in this case, it's the idea of giving the, uh, the circumstances that accompany the action. So we don't just draw near on the basis of emotion or feeling good. We draw near in association with the, idea, with the reality that we have a, uh, 
a heart that is conformed to the judicial demands of God. And that we have been cleansed from the judicial guilt of sin. And that's his point. Because that has already happened. And what we discover in this passage is that the the participles that are used here are in a per, the perfect tense, and perfect tense always emphasizes completed action. The verb is in the present tense, let us now draw near, because something has already happened and has been completed. That's the idea of those the, 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 the two participles here. And it's because we have this full assurance of faith, and because our heart has been sprinkled, from an evil conscience, and because our bodies have already been washed with pure water, because that talks about what happened at salvation. And so now that you have this judicial cleansing, and sin isn't the issue anymore, now you can have fellowship with God, and so that's the focus of the command. So he says, let us draw near with, or in association with, a true heart in full assurance of faith. And the word that's translated true is the Greek word aletheinos, which means something that conforms to reality, conforms to truth. It's something that is uh, in conformity to the truth of God's word, that no one can have fellowship with a perfect, righteous God unless they are also perfectly righteous. And so our heart, which is a term for our inner being, everything that we are spiritually, it's just a sum total word, that summarizes everything that is at the core of our being, that that heart has to be in conformity to God's demands of righteousness. So he says we draw near, and we could even say on the basis of, or because this has happened, with a true heart, and then we have to say, well, how do we get that true heart? Do we go out and... and um, sort of uh, gin up our own morality and we have to clean up our life and and uh, stop doing all kinds of sins that are in our life. And that's such a popular message in so many churches is that before you can have a relationship with God, you have to repent from your sins. You have to turn from your sins. And it's all about uh, repentance and remorse. And that's not the biblical message of grace at all, and the way we know we have a true heart is because of these participles that are given in the second part of the verse. And so I'm going to skip there before we come back. These two participles are having our heart sprinkled. Sprinkled is the verb, and it's from the Greek word rontizo, meaning simply to sprinkle. And because it doesn't have an article with it, it's an adverb. Adverb. And so it modifies that command to draw near, and it has the idea of, uh, because it's a perfect tense, it's an adverbial participle of cause. Let us draw near with a true heart because we have already had our heart sprinkled from an evil conscience. That happened at salvation. And remember I talked about the fact that um, Sprinkling was the sprinkling the blood on the articles of furniture in the tabernacle was what uh, Aaron did when he initially set the the furniture in the tabernacle apart, and then he splattered the blood on the people and on the covenant. Everything got splattered with blood to show that it was all positionally set apart for the service of God. That didn't happen again. That only happened once at the beginning. And that's tantamount to what happens to us at the instant of salvation. And because Christ's death is applied to us, we are positionally forgiven and positionally cleansed when we are justified. And it's not on the basis of any good that we've done. It's not on the basis of any morality that we have. It's totally on the basis of the fact that it is Jesus Christ's righteousness that the Father looks at and says, you have a relationship with me because of him and his character, and it never will be on the basis of you and your character. 
And if you ever get a hold of that, that will change your whole understanding of salvation, the Christian life, and you'll quit trying to impress God and start realizing that we live our life in gratitude to what he has done because we could never do that on our own. But most Christians out there never come to grips with that. They're, they're trying so hard to please God, and they're trying so hard to repent of their sins that they just get all wrapped up in guilt and failure, and every time they turn around, they do something that shocks or surprises them. They think that God hates them again. They've lost their salvation, or they weren't ever saved, and they can't ever relax and enjoy the Christian life and enjoy life. So we have these two perfect uh, participles here that are adverbs of cause that, that tell us that because we had our hearts sprinkled and because we had our bodies washed, and notice the combination of hearts and bodies is the totality of man. When it says our bodies were washed, it's not talking about baptism. It's talking about the fact that the whole man, material and immaterial, is cleansed by what Christ did on the cross when we believe in him. So that's the idea. Going back to the first phrase, we must draw near with a true heart, and that refers to the seat and center of the human life, the very core of our being, in full assurance of faith. Now, before we go on, let me just retranslate this for you. What the writer is saying is because we have confidence to enter, Back in verse 19. And because we have a great high priest, back in verse 21, we must draw near, already sprinkled clean and washed with pure water. It's because we understand who we are in Christ that we can have fellowship with God. And that's the key to living the Christian life is that walk with God. And when we fail, we confess our sin, and that's experiential forgiveness, and then we can, we can move forward. So the writer says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And this is a Greek word, pleroforia, which indicates perfect certitude. We're 100% sure. We're confident. It's not arrogance that we know we're going to go to heaven. It's just confidence because we know the truth. And so we have a full conviction. It's a state of complete and total certainty. We're convinced of the truth that we have access to God. So because we have that, and the idea of full assurance of faith, faith is the source. Faith is viewed here not the act of believing, but it's viewed as what we believe. You know, faith can mean... Um, the act of believing, I need to have more faith. In other words, I need to, we're saying that I need to trust God more. But sometimes we use faith as a term referring to a body of beliefs, and we may talk about different denominations or sects as, as that faith. What is your faith? Are you an Episcopalian? Are you a Presbyterian? Are you a Methodist? What is your faith? What is the doctrine, the body of beliefs that you have? Another word that we'll see in this same passage in the next verse, verse 23, the word confession, is another word that means that same thing. We often talk of doctrinal statements or doctrinal beliefs of denominations as their confession. Instead of saying a doctrinal statement, churches used to have confessions of faith. It said meant the same thing, and that was the idea there. So, the full assurance of faith is the confidence that we have from the doctrine that we believe. That's why he has labored from chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10 to make sure we understand all that Christ did. And once we see all of that and see all the dimensions of it, then we can have true confidence and we can relax because we know that nothing can happen. We can't do anything to lose our salvation. We can't do anything to jeopardize that relationship with God. Jesus Christ did everything at the cross, and he's provided everything for us in the spiritual life so that we can face anything that we have in life on the basis of what he provides. So we have that absolute confidence. So going back to our understanding of, uh, of salvation... We have the three senses of salvation, phase one, which is justification. 
phase two, which is the spiritual life, and phase three, which is glorification. And we've talked about these, and we've seen this on Sunday morning recently, that we at the cross we talk about being saved from the penalty of sin, so we were saved. We talk about the spiritual life in the sense of being saved from the power of sin, and in a future tense sense, as you will be saved. And what this passage is talking about in terms of having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water is this occurred at phase one. It is also called positional sanctification. We are positionally set apart in Christ. Now, when we live in our Christian life and we grow, that's called experiential sanctification. And when we are face-to-face with the Lord, that's referred to as completed sanctification. But we are positionally set apart in phase one. So that is what is being talked about here, what's pictured in the sprinkling of the blood on the articles of furniture and on the people and on the covenant in Exodus 24, 6 and 8 and Exodus 29, 16, 20 and 21, positional sanctification. And this is also parallel to the idea of washing, which is what occurred, as we've seen, when Aaron was first dedicated, consecrated, set apart as the high priest. He was washed fully, and that's the Greek verb luo, which has uh, the idea of taking a bath as opposed to just washing uh, your hands or washing your feet. Now then we get in verse 23, we get to the second command. Let us hold fast. The first command is let us draw near or we should draw near or we must draw near. And now it's we must hold fast. We can't give it up. This is vital. This is important. This is critical. You can't give up what you believe. No matter what happens, and see, that was the situation in the first century, is these uh, Jews that he's writing to were under pressure from uh, the authorities in, in uh, Judea and from their friends to give up their belief that Jesus was the Messiah and to give up their Christianity and to go back into the Pharisaism and Judaism. And so that would mean giving up what they believed about Jesus. And so that the belief system of Christianity is referred to here by the phrase confession of our hope. And it's a word confession used as an admission of what you, of what you believe. And so the command there is let us hold fast without wavering. And here in this slide I put two, two the two Greek words up there, let us hold fast is the command. Again, it's a present active subjunctive indicating a first-person plural command. We must hold on to this confession of our hope. Hope drives us to the future. Remember, from the very beginning of Hebrews 1, I pointed out that the focal point of Hebrews is on what Christ did in the past and its impact on us in the present but it drives us toward what, what he's preparing us for in the future to reign as priests and kings. And that's the focal point of these warnings, that if we give up, if we fade out, if we don't persist, what we jeopardize is our future position, future rewards to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. If we can't make it through boot camp, we'll never make it to the Super Bowl. Now, I don't know how that's going to communicate for some people, but that's that's the idea. If you can't make it through the beginning stages in the training procedure, then you're never going to be able to compete for the main prizes because you haven't prepared yourself. You've given up. You've faded out. So doesn't mean you lose your salvation. You'll still be in heaven. You'll still have some rewards, some uh, some presence there, but it's not what it could have or should have been. So he challenges them, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. This is the Greek word aklines, meaning steady, uh, unwavering. It is 
uh, you're not going to falter. You're not going to fade out or wimp out. Uh, you're not going to give up just because things get a little rugged sometime. And things might get real rugged for us in this country as Christians. The tide has turned in this country, and the thrust of this of the leadership in this nation is against Bible-believing Christians. And there are many people who think they are Bible-believing Christians, and they don't even have a clue because they're so mired in legalism and liberalism. And if you want to see a real mess, you just figure out a system of thinking that is characterized by legalism and liberalism, and what you get is... Uh, a self-righteous, intolerant person who preaches tolerance. I won't mention any names, but that's the kind of culture that we have developed. And if you, the liberal leftist in this country just wants everybody to say everything is okay, that's what they want. And right now we have a president whose very election has sort of personified or pictured as um, we've gotten rid of the parents and we've uh, we've elected a new parent who isn't going to tell us that anything's wrong and he's not going to discipline us and he's going to bring all the cookies and candy that he can in, and cakes and ice cream into the house so we can just have all we want and we're going to... Sp- print all the money we want, and we're going to bail everybody out because this new parent read Dr. Spock. And he's now going to apply the principles of Dr. Spock's child raising to government. And we're not going to let anybody suffer any consequences for stupid decisions or irresponsible decisions. And uh, if they're operating on on irrational thinking like the state of California has for the last 40 or 50 years and spend money on all these ridiculous social programs like money just grows on trees and there's no accountability. Uh, the federal government's going to bail them out. Mark my words. We're going to see the federal government come in and bail out California and bail out New York, and they're just going to print more and more money, and we're going to end up with a dollar that's not worth anything. It's not worth much now anyway, but it's really not going to be worth anything in another three or four years when we end up having to pay for all of this. And the result of this is there's going to be more and more problems, but when you get fallen man who is frantically searching for meaning and happiness in life, so much so that they think that this little Ida fossil of this uh, this. 25-million-year-old monkey is something to do with the missing link. If your, your head is so darkened and you're so irrational and foolish, the Bible says, that you can, you can believe that, and anybody who comes along like me and says you're foolish and stupid and idiotic for doing it, all their anger, all their bitterness, all their hatred that, that's been held down is just going to come pouring out on somebody like me, and they're just going to squashes everybody who believes that they're wrong because that's the last thing they want to hear is that they're wrong. And um, it was interesting this week. Actually, it came out last week. The American, uh, I see this, psycho, the American Psychiatric Association or Psychological Association, I can't remember what it, which one it is, but it's the national body of uh, of. Uh, Psycho crazies. And they finally admitted that after 20 years of intense study and research, they can't find a shred of evidence to indicate that a person's sexual behavior is influenced by material causation. That means there's no gay gene. Now, what people don't realize, you'd be amazed how many people think there's something to that gay gene thing. There was one study done in the early 90s that was later proved to be flawed. The results could not be duplicated by anybody else. Thinking that said that there might be, notice the word might, always circle that. 
Like if you read the articles on Ida, they said this might be the missing link, but they, they even published a book. I went into Costco yesterday and looked at the book table. The, the Wednesday they announced this, that this find, and they were ready. They had published books and articles. Everything was ready to go. This was an orchestrated effort to overpower everybody in America with the brilliance of evolution in this anniversary of Darwin's birth. We're going to prove Darwin was right. And the next day, they had stacks of these books on Ida. Doesn't it just bless your heart? They're just all wrong. Professing to be wise, they became fools. But they're suppressing. Look how much money and energy and effort has been put into uh, proving their position, because if there's no God, there's no absolutes. If there's no absolutes, there's no morality. And if there's no morality, then you can't tell me that anything I'm doing is wrong. And that means that parents can't be parents, and I don't need to have a president that can tell me it's wrong. We're just going to have a whole culture of per- permissibility, and we're all going to do whatever we want to do, and it's all going to work out. And we can print all the money we want to, and we can... Uh, do all of the uh, projects we want to to save the planet, and we can legalize everything we want to legalize. And and but every now and then, somebody runs into something called a terrorist, and a little reality has to enter in. And it's interesting how at least the president seems to have had to back up a pace or two on several of his campaign promises as he got into office and realize that there were some actual bad people out there that might want to do us harm. And so he he just, every now and then, these fantasy worldviews that the carnal mind comes up with to get away from God just run into the hard reality of that rock wall of reality. So uh, when that happens, the Christians are going to get blamed. Christians got blamed in Rome. Christians have been blamed by all kinds of people down through the ages, and the Christians will get blamed again. And just like the these Christian Jews who were under persecution from their unsaved Jewish brethren in the first century and were under pressure to give up Christianity, we're going to go through the same kind of thing. So that command is very much pointed toward us. We must hold on to the confession of our Hope. Notice, it's hope. This is the only thing that gives hope to us. No matter how dark the days may get, no matter how difficult the challenges may be, no matter how, how defeated it may seem that we are, there is always hope. There's always a confident expectation because we know that God is in charge. So we hold on to that without wavering. For he who promises faithful, notice how he drives our focal point to God. He is faithful, the character of God, the essence of God. He is always going to do the same thing the same way every time. He is always true to his word. He is never going to fail us. He is always on our side. And it doesn't matter how dark the days may come, may be. It doesn't matter how weak the dollar gets. It doesn't matter how empty our 401ks become. God is faithful, and he will always take care of us. And so we need to get our eyes off of all the problems that are going on in the world around us politically and economically and put our focus on the one place that we have certainty, and that's the Word of God and on God himself. He is the one who is faithful. And then we come to the third command, which is in verse 24. And let us consider. Let us should be translated we should or we must. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Now, all we'll have time for uh, this evening is just to get into uh, the exegesis a little bit and understand what he is saying, and then we'll have to come back next time and unravel some of the implications of this because they are uh, extremely important for understanding the role of the body of Christ, all those other believers that are fallen, 
sinners that we associate with that are also believers, that they do have a role to play in our spiritual life. So he starts off, let us consider, and this is the Greek verb kata noeo. Now, nous, N-O-U-S, is the Greek word for mind. Noeo is the Greek word verb for thinking. Kata noeo uh, just uh, emphasizes or stresses the main idea of the verb to think. And so it has the idea of thinking carefully about something, considering it, not just saying, well, considered for us sometimes has the idea of, well, I'll, I'll consider that. Kind of like when um, President Obama was running for office uh, last year and people would make certain suggestions about uh, you know, not raising, not raising taxes, and he would say, "Well, we'll consider that," which was just a nice way of saying, "Well, we're not, we're not going to do that, but we'll make it sound like we are." No, this isn't what it means to consider. It means to think about something, to think deeply, to think uh, profoundly, to contemplate, to even brainstorm something in this context, because what we're to think about, we are all to think about this not meaning that all of us get together in one big holy huddle and think about it, but but groups of believers uh, are to think about things. Let us carefully reflect on something. Let us carefully think through something. Let us uh, give careful thought to a course of action. Let us consider, let us carefully think, and are better translated, we must carefully Think through how to stir up love and good works in one another. Wait a minute. I thought spiritual life was all about me going to Bible class and just studying the Word so that I could grow spiritually, and that was all there was to it. No, that is a means to an end. Unfortunately, when you think that the spiritual life is all about you taking in doctrine so you can grow spiritually, you have succumbed to a worldly idea coming out of the American culture. It's not all about you. It's all about serving God. And But before we can serve God, we have to uh, rethink. We have to have our thought life, our mentality overhauled so we're no longer trying to do things the way the devil does things, the, the way the world does things, we're going to do things the way God does things. So we have to have training. We have to go through a form of boot camp called local church and teaching, but that's not what it's all about. It doesn't end with going to church, filling up your Bible notebooks with all kinds of doctrines, going home, just learning a lot of terms, and being able to uh, talk the... Um, Talk the vernacular. So let us carefully think about how to stir up or stimulate love and good works in others. Involves other people. Well, you know, that gets kind of nasty because other people are just dirty, rotten, carnal sinners too, just like me. And I'd rather just sit at home and listen to my tape recorder all the time. The Christian life is really easy when it's just me and my MP3 player. Maybe we can have a song, me and my iPod. And that's all you need, you, your iPod, and God. But that, 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 what that does is that creates, that creates an isolated Christian. And you, you, when you carry that to its logical extent, what you have is a whole bunch of isolated Christians. And you have one here and one here and one here, but there's no connection. In philosophy, they call that atomism. Everything's broken down into different parts, but there's no whole. That's not what the Bible talks about. Again and again, 1 Corinthians and Romans and Ephesians, Paul says we are members of one another. There's no atomism in the Christian life. We are members of one another. There is an organic unity in the body of Christ from believer to believer. We're not just a bunch of individual heroes out there leading the charge against Satan in, without having a relationship to other believers. It's a team action. Now, you get into some cultures, everything's team. There's nothing individual. 
You go to some some uh, tribes in Africa, some uh, uh, other cultures like that. Everything's about the collective whole, and they can't think. It's very hard for them to think about being or operating just as an individual without thinking about how it affects everybody else. In America, we're just the opposite. We're so individual oriented that we have a hard time sometimes thinking about the organic unity of a team. And see, both of those extremes are wrong when you're talking about the body of Christ. It's not just this corporate unity, but it's neither is it just an individual isolationism. It is about learning the Bible and living your spiritual life, but that's only a means to the end, and the end it has to do with serving the body of Christ. Now, if you don't go to church anywhere, and a church can be five people in a, in a house somewhere. Somebody last asked me the question last time, says, well, are, are, are you telling me that if all I'm able to do, because I can't find a local church, all I'm able to do is sit and listen to my live stream, that I need to quit doing that and go to some local church? No, I'm not saying that. I'll tell you more about what I'm saying next time, but I'm not saying that. But neither am I saying that that if you have an option to be involved in a local church, that you should make it an either or. You can do both. And there's all kinds of uh, great stories about people who have gotten involved in local churches. They get all of their feeding and their spiritual growth and their teaching from listening to me or one of the other doctrinal pastors where they can get fed, and then they go out and they get involved with some group of believers, and God opens up all kinds of doors of ministry for them. And it's just remarkable how God can use somebody in that kind of a situation. But it starts with understanding this command that we're to consider one another, we're to think about each other and how we can stimulate one another to love and good deeds. I'm just going to close with one little uh, anecdote before we I go on to uh, get on to some more significant things in the exegesis here. One of the things that I, I've seen happen several times is what happens when a group of people go on the mission field. For a short-term missions project, you take a group of high school kids or college kids or 20-somethings over to, over to uh, Kiev or down or to Africa or to Mexico on a real missions trip where they're actually talking to people, teaching Bible classes. You know, there's a lot of churches and church groups who have missions trips and they go hammer some nails or they just go on a tourist trip to Spain or to Africa and they hear somebody preach somewhere, and that's the extent of it. But um, when you go on a real short-term missions trip where you're actually going and teaching kids in a summer camp or you're teaching uh, veterans in a uh, veteran's home or you're teaching cancer kids with cancer in a cancer ward, and and you come back and it, all of a sudden it changes the way you look at what we're doing in America. We have such a truncated view of church that we just go to church on Sunday morning and then we go on Sunday night and that's sort of the extent of then I've got to work and I've got to raise my kids and all these other things that we have going on. And I, I remember when I first went over to Mogilov uh, in Belarus when uh, a number of people had gone over there right after the wall came down in uh, wall came down in ninety two so this was january of ninety four and when they went in, they had all kinds of doors that were open now we don 't have as many opportunities here, but they had all kinds of open doors where they were invited to come and come into an english class in a in a school could elementary junior high or high school and just teach whatever they wanted to because they had never heard a native English speaker. So they'd go in and they'd t- teach them Bible stories. Or they would go to, uh, the, there was a, uh, there was an orphanage and, uh, the hospital, hospital for children and a lot of these kids, the, the, the cloud from Chernobyl had come up over this area of Belarus and uh, there were a lot of, uh, children just had horrible health problems. And I remember um, going out with uh, Phyllis Meyer several times in the two weeks I was there to uh, teach these kids and just just good news clubs and different things like that. And and about seven or eight years ago, Dan Ingram took three or four people from uh, the church of Preston City and went over to help work a camp. 
at, uh, that, that Myers was running over in Kiev. And all four of them came back and said, this was great. How can we do here the kinds of things that we did there? The problem was the four people that went, you know, Dan lived in Washington, D.C. One of the ladies lived up in Boston. Uh, two months later, or about a month later, one of the, the uh, college-age boy that went, Left his family moved to Missouri, and so they 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 weren't they, they couldn't coalesce in an action plan. But they came back, and what are they trying to do? They're trying to stimulate one another to love and good. Deal. What can we do? They were excited, and that's what that word uh, stimulate means. It's the Greek word from which we get our English word paroxysm, and it has that idea of just really stimulating. You, you see this with some people who they, they get an idea and they say, okay, what can we do? And they get together and they, they huddle up and they think, okay, what are some ideas that we can come up with to develop some kind of outreach or ministry on our own? This isn't something that's led by the deacons of West Houston Bible Church uh, or by me. or It's just people saying, what can I do to go out and find some area of ministry where I can get involved uh, teaching the Bible or going to a hospital and visiting with people who are there who have nobody there and giving them the gospel, leaving a track, praying with them, just coming up with ideas, not necessarily for trying to get people just to come to church, but just to develop ministry in people's lives, applying the word beyond just coming to church, filling up your doctrinal notebook, and then uh, going home and going about your life. We'll come back talk about more ideas next time. Uh, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to be challenged by these ideas, and pray that God the Holy Spirit would use this to really stimulate us to uh, further ideas of thinking about how we can be uh, a, a more significant ministry in others' lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.